Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Tasigi. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about learning cross-modality and coded representations from uh, transformers. Uh, particularly, we're looking at LexMod, the model which was published at AMNLP last year. And for this episode, we've invited Mohit Bansan and Havdan from uh, UNC Chapel Hill to join us. Welcome to the program, Mohit and Hav. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So, can you start us off by telling us what exactly is the idea behind learning cross-model representations and what you were doing in your paper? Yeah, in this paper, we want to build a joint representation of the cross-model input, such as a resonant model on the image net and the birth model pre-trained on a large amount of text. And the motivation behind it that is if we just use unimodal representation, such as the ResNet and the BERT, they actually did not work very well on cross-modality tasks. I think the main reason behind this is that the two kind of features, the language feature and the vision features, they are not really aligned with each other. So what we want to have in this work is to have a pre-trained features for the cross-modality tasks and the cross-modality input. It's uh, image and uh, sentence in details. Okay, uh, can you give us some examples of what kinds of tasks uh, you think these models will help? Yeah, for example, I think the main task is a visual question answering that we take an image and a question as an input, and uh, the question is related to the image. And we want to predict the answer, such as there is an image in the it's a room, and we want to ask what is the color, it's a chair. In this case, we want to predict the answer of the color. Maybe it's blue if the chair is blue. And in this case, we need to understand where is the chair is in the, in the image and what the color of the chair is. It needs the grounding of the object chair, and it also needs to tell the property of the object chair in the image. I think we could be even a little bit more specific and more general than this. So if you think about a data set, so there's GQA, grounded question answering, and NLVR2, a data set, natural language visual reasoning. So these are, as you said, visual question answering data sets. Some specific examples where you might expect that like some pre-trained transformer or cross-modal transformer might help. Like chair seems common enough that it's not a huge deal. But let's let's take something like glass beer bottles and, and contrast that with like wine glasses, where maybe the words here are kind of similar, um, but they're visually pretty different. And they're in some sense long tail. Like uh, I'm not going to see a whole lot of examples of this in my training data, probably for any particular task. But Bert, you would think, knows that like some correspondences and some differences between these. Maybe not their visual manifestation, but at least it will know some kind of correspondence here. And so perhaps you can get some leverage out of using some pre-trained language representations to do better alignment on long tail image phenomena. More specifically, this is, I think, where you probably would expect to see help. I think uh, how had a good example in one of our emails, like maybe how you remember this a couple of months ago, uh, he had some nice uh, visual versus uh, textual clusters. So basically yeah. in something like bird or just textual glove, uh, things like lipstick and sunglasses uh, would be clustered more closely to each other because they are both related to the topic of fashion, the textual topic too. Whereas on the visual side, lipstick would be more close to uh, something like a cigarette lighter. Spatially, they are more close to uh, one's mouth. Is that how a good example? 
Yeah, I think it's a good example. And uh, I think, I currently think it's uh, using the language representation to solve the long tail problem. It's still very challenging because actually what I found that it, as Mohit just said, that actually if you, we just take the unimodal pre-training, the representation of the word embedding, the vision pre-training and the language pre-training, they are very different to each other. In details, because language pre-training is contextual pre-training, like we want to predict the word from its context. And the visual pre-training is actually something like the semantic pre-training or something like this. It actually predicts what happens in the image. I will give an example here, like the word left and right. Actually, they would have the exactly same context in most of the language. Whereas you could put the word left here, you could also put the word right here. The embedding for the word left and right, they would be almost the same. But for the visual embedding, they would be very different to each other. Actually, left and right is the opposite in the vision embedding, but they are the closest embedding in the language embedding. Yeah, this is a really good point. The overall motivation for this cross-modal representation, I think this is a really great example that um, you get very different information from both. And you, you started by talking about motivation on the image side, and we've talked about some specific examples there. But I think also... I don't think this is really what you were targeting with this paper, but you would expect in the long term when we figure this out in some sense that the multimodal representation should help us even on the language side for language-only tasks. So that's like a long-term goal of this whole area, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a general goal of our project. Something also clicked something in my head is that five, six years ago, we had this paper in CBPR 2014. Uh, where we were trying to, basically what Matt's trying to say is, yes, we would like to take ambiguities that are ambiguous just with text alone and hopefully be able to resolve these ambiguities with grounding in some other modality. People have shown that grounding could be in speech, it could be in vision, it could be uh, in robotic actions, right? So this is exactly where we should hopefully converge to. Uh, but there's also older work, so not just ours, but one example is CVPR 2014, where we tried to do co-reference ambiguities, for example, uh, resolving co-reference ambiguities by doing the real definition of grounding. If two phrases in the caption sort of pointed to the same 3D cuboid in the 3D image, then that would be the real definition of co-referent. Then uh, our collaborators from now in Georgia Tech, uh, Devi and Dhruv, they also did this thing for the parsing side of things, uh, where we have prepositional attachment ambiguities, and uh, they used uh, vision features to be able to resolve that ambiguity. So it's also uh, would be great to connect it back to those kinds of uh, examples. Yeah, and w one more that I feel like I have to mention, just because it's really interesting. Um, also, you can ground it to other languages in like machine translations. So you get like multilingual kinds of embeddings that can help resolve certain kinds of ambiguities. Okay, yeah, coming back to the specifics of the model. So you have this vision side of things and uh, language side of things, and you have embedding layers and encoding layers on uh, these two uh, modalities, right? So some of these details might be hard to talk about without actually showing images, which you have do a very good job in your paper, but let's try to do our best. For the embedding side of things, can you describe that part of... Uh, so the, the language is essentially just the uh, word piece encoder, right? Like, like many other transformer models. Uh, can you talk about uh, the vision side of things in more details, please? Yeah, sure. So for the language embedding, it's just a sequence of words and with this positional embedding. And in the vision side, we just want to do almost the same thing. But the challenge here is that the, the visual input is an image. So an image is naturally a two-dimensional array that you have heat and whites. So what we want to do is that we want to first convert it to a sequence of features. 
and uh, it also have features and in the idea of features and uh, positional embeddings just as a language part. The tools we use here is an objective detector. That is, the object detector tries to detect some meaningful object in the image. It's just some rectangles on the image which contains some meaningful objects, labels, or something like this, like chairs, tables, television, something like this. Then we just use these objects as the input of the feature. So it would be a sequence, and the, it would also have the positions for it. The position is the coordinates of the bounding box, the rectangles. So this is the general idea of the vision embedding. I see. Okay. I'm not familiar with image embeddings in general because I've not, never worked on, in this area. Is this, is this a common way of doing this? Are there other works that do something similar as well? On the vision side, I think the embedding, the vision embedding is more likely to use the grid embedding. Grid embedding is just you have a, a image and you convert it to a feature map. It's still a two-dimensional feature map. And each feature is corresponding to a small patch of the image. So it is called the grid feature. But on the vision and the language, I think the object detection currently become a dominant preprocessing. Okay, thanks. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, so that's how you embed uh, your inputs on both the vision and the language side. Can you talk about the encoders now, please? So for the encoders, because currently the language and the vision input, they are both a sequence of vectors. So what we could do is that for the vision side, we have a visual encoder. It's a, it, uh, uh, maybe first on the language side, it's a, Language encoder is just the same as BERT. It's a transformer blocks. And uh, on the vision side, because currently the input is a, a sequence of objects, so we could also apply a transformer blocks here. So we call this visual encoder. And uh, on top of them, we want to fuse the information from the vision and language together. So we have some cross-modality transformers. So it, it's built with cross-modal attention blocks instead of self-attention blocks. Okay. And uh, is your paper the first one to introduce cross-attention? Uh, no, actually not. I think the cross-attention is an old idea. It's used in vision language task, and it's also used in summarization of the texture. It's also used in the BIDEF model to handle the reading component. Of course, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, indeed. I mean, this is very similar to the BIDEF idea. Okay. I think we are, we are the first paper to stack these cross-attention layers to build high-level representations of the connections. Okay, all right. Yeah, so you have uh, self-attention uh, uh, in these unimodal encoders, right? I mean, you, you have two unimodal encoders and two cross-model encoders, correct? Uh, and you have self-attention in both these unimodal encoders and uh, the cross-modality encoders have cross-attention followed by uh, another layer of self-attention, correct? So what uh, exactly is this? I mean, why do you need this additional layer of self-attention on top of cross-attention? I think it has two explanations. The first one is that it's very similar. The BERT layer, the self-attention layer, is almost similar to the encoder of the transformer. And the, the cross-modality layer is very similar to the, actually similar to the decoder of the transformer. So it would first have a cross-attention layer. The decoder of transformer would first have a cross-attention layer attend to the output of the encoders and then it would have a self-attention layer. So we actually use the same architecture here. We first have a cross-attention attend to the, the other modality, and we, we have a self-attention layer. Okay. But okay. It, we could consider it as a two transformer decoders in parallel. And the other explanation is that it's very similar to the BIDAF model. Um, in BIDAF model, you would first have a cross-attention layer, 
and then you would have a LSTM modeling layer to process the fused information better. So the self-attention is in replace of this modeling LSTM layer. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, your models have three outputs, correct? I mean, you have you take three bits of information from uh, the combination of these encoders. Can you describe them? Yeah. The three input is the joint representation. It's just a single vector. So the language and visual output is a sequence of vectors. So the joint representation is very similar to the resonant features. So it's just a, a one, is a single vector which rep, which in representation of the whole image and the sentence. And the, the language output is a sequence of vectors. It's very similar to the bird output that each vector is corresponding to a word token. And the, the objects the, on the vision side is also a sequence of vector, and each vector is corresponding to an object. The only difference is that uh, here for here, for each language output, we also take the vision side into consideration just to encode the language side. Okay. And uh, you have this cross-modality output, which uses the uh, output of the, the encoding of the CLS token. That, I think, covers the details of the model. Let's talk about the pre-training tasks and how you pre-train your model. You describe five pre-training tasks in your paper. Can you go over them? I have a few questions about some of the tasks. Yeah, thank you. So the, the five tasks is um, grouped into three different types. The first is a language task. The second one is the vision task. And third is cross-modality task. So for the language task, it's just the mask language model is the same as BERT. And for the vision side, it's in general the mask object prediction. We mask some object from the input and we try to predict the mask object from the input. And uh, we have two tasks, subtasks here. Actually, we have two different kind of loss here. The first one is that, that we want to predict the feature of the mask object. And the second one, we want to predict the label of the mask object such as whether it is a dog or a cat or something like this. So for the third group, it also has two subtasks. The first one is cross-modality matching, that we want to measure whether the sentence aligned is aligned with the images or not. And the last subtask is the visual question answering. So because we also use the question as a part of the data set, so if the sentence is actually a question, we just want to answer the question, want to answer visual related questions. So you have uh, two object recognition pre-training tasks, right? One where you regress over the features uh, of the objects and the other is where you predict the labels, right? What exactly is the intuition behind having these two different tasks and what is the model expected to learn differently from these tasks? Yeah, I think that the motivation is that we want the model to capture both high-level information and the low-level information. So the low-level information is captured by the feature regression that we just directly want to regress the to to science and the 48-dimensional dense feature of the ResNet. So it would capture the information such as the color and the texture of the objects. And the classification, we want to capture the high-level information, like why the object is a dog or a cat or something like this. So this is used to capture two kind of information. Do you actually see that the way the model learns is different for these two tasks? And so you described an intuition. Did you actually see that in your results as well? Mm, I think I, I could observe that because I, I did, uh, I, I just tested the help of the language, help of the feature regression on top of the object detection. 
And if I add a feature regression, I could find that something like whether it's about the detailed texture of the image, some questions about the detailed texture of the objects could be answered. Like, but this is just a collectively analysis. I didn't have the quantitative results for it. Okay. Is it fair to say that the feature regression task is basically trying to do model distillation of the original object detector that was trained? Is that fair? Mm, let me say, I think it's a little bit different. It's more like autoencoder. Like I want to recover the input from the output. Oh, okay. So you get as input the feature representations from the pre-trained ResNet or whatever, and then you do some encoding and then you try to recover those same features. So you're not taking the original pixels and producing the feature representations. That would be model distillation. You're doing something much more like autoencoding, as you say, which is like I take my features, I compress them or rejigger them in some way and then try to predict them again. Okay, got it. Um, so, okay, to summarize, you have five pre-training tasks. Uh, three of them are unimodal. One is uh, for language and two are from, for the vision tasks and two are cross-model tasks, right? So what data sets do you use for pre-training the model? Uh, we generally use five data sets and it's grouped in two categories. The first category is the caption data set and second category is visual question answering data set. And the, in the first Group, we have the MS Cocoa captioning data set and the visual genome captioning data set. And for the second group, we have three image questions in data set. The first one is VQE, the second one is GQE, and the third one is VGQE. So in total, five different data sets. Okay. Something I thought was strange about uh, using both image captioning and VQA datasets for pre-training cross-model transformers, right? So in VQA datasets, essentially, because these are questions, there's some key information missing in these uh, statements, right? Because they're questions. But image captions are essentially descriptions of the image, right? So did you actually have to deal with that difference between these two sources of data, uh, or did you just uh, pre-train them anyway? Yeah, it's a good question. We actually consider them as the same because we, we want to build a universal representation for the image and the sentence. And the reason is that we actually want to build the ground connection between the sentence and the, the image. So the key missing component here is the grounding part that we want to know which word is corresponding to which part of the image. In this sense, the only thing we need is that the, the sentence is related to the image. We don't need the sentence fully describing the image. So the, I think the question is still uh, an image-related sentence. And the, one more thing I want to mention is that actually the caption is not is still a partially describing of the image. It's not fully describe everything in the image. Because in the caption, you just highlight some most important things in the image. A cat is sitting on the chair. You would not mention the tables, the television, or something like this. Yeah, so I think it's almost like a uh, sort of uh, spectrum issue, right? So a caption can be actually less detailed than a visual question answering question sometimes, and vice versa. A question could be uh, more detailed, uh, even though it's asking about the third thing, but it will still mention two things about the image while asking about the third thing. So in general, uh, I think that's what how you're trying to. But, but I, I mean, I, there might be some uh, future experiment here to see if we convert the VQA questions plus answers to more like statements, maybe. There is some advantage to that because now it's uh, exactly similar to caption. 
Yeah, these are good points. Is there room for doing something like trying to find the specific regions of the image that the questions or the ca- the captions are talking about and uh, only use that chunks of the image for, for pre-training your cross-model transformers because that's what you're more interested in, right? Would doing something like that make more sense? These are very small data sets. Yeah. So like if you look at the CBPR, again, the six-year-old paper, we had like a very small data set on 3D rooms and like aligning the sentences to cuboid. Then Julia Hockenmeyer and her student had like a slightly bigger version of this a very useful paper. I think it's a very good way to supervise your attention layers also. As far as we know, there's not very good data sets that exist for this. I, I'm really not familiar with this work, so you'll have to fill in some stuff here. But you could imagine like a latent alignment model that just embraces the fact that, as you say, you're always going to get a very incomplete description of the image that you're looking at. And like tries to detect, I don't know, at, at what level of depth you're like showing stuff. Like I, I could describe a bird. I, I could say like what species it is. I could say it's a bird. I could say it's an animal. I could I could give specific descriptions of like the feather patterns or or like the color of the beak. And all of these should like ground very differently and have like different alignments between the parts of the image and the question. And like you could imagine having some latent alignment model that tries to be intelligent about this. This sounds also related to curriculum learning, where you could be going from like simpler to longer sentences. You can also define the notion of like specificity in images and captions, where they basically there's a way to calculate how uh, specific or uh, how, uh, like you said, deep uh, the description is. So yeah, I could see this happening both uh, as a sort of input feature, additional feature scenario, or as learning it latently or revising the input signal latently. So I didn't catch all the details of this CVPR work you were talking about earlier. Is this, like, are there models that have, like, explicit latent variables and try to do some kind of, like, EM and, like, figure out what the alignment is and use this to do better training? Uh, the CVPR 14 paper uh, with my uh, Chicago TTI collaborators uh, who moved to Toronto since then, Raquel Wittesen uh, and Sanya Fidler. That was right before sort of uh, deep learning took over. So this was a big factor graph uh, with belief propagation and trying to learn uh, all the 3D cuboid and phrases on the caption side, uh, like their connections latently. Okay. Another related question is whether these um, the data sets that are used for pre-training, if they do have multiple questions per image, how will you be able to re- leverage all of them at the same time? Actually, in the data set, actually, each image is corresponding to the to multiple captions and the multiple questions. So we just use each pair as a single training instance. I think the question is, do you think, the, I mean, obviously, are you treated as, those as independent? Do you think, I mean, there's work that takes multiple references, uh, generation tasks, and also tries to not just use it for inference, but during training, right? That these belong to the same instance. Mm. So I think the question might be similar, where if you know that these four questions come from the same image, can you somehow do better training by telling your model that these are related? It depends on what, like, if it's like machine translation style references, then they're probably just paraphrases of saying the same thing but if it's more like four different captions of this image that are trying to cover different aspects of the image then it's much more interesting probably because then it's sort of making sure that you're it's a coverage issue so you could actually have a loss function that makes sure that across these four captions we have covered for like all parts of the image as opposed to like it won't be about redundancy it will be about coverage yeah well uh, captions are generally expected to describe the whole image or probably right paraphrased sort of references maybe but uh, if we use data sets like the 
dense captioning data sets from Stanford, uh, which we've used for some other uh, papers. They are more about basically going through each part of the image and densely describing a whole paragraph about each aspect of the image. So that we haven't really looked into so far. Okay, cool. All right. And another question I had about the data sets that you used, did, did you treat all of them similarly or did you like pre-process them differently or make the model aware of which pre-training task or which pre-training data sets that you're using for these tasks? Yeah, we, we didn't do any special pre-processing on each data set. I think the only thing we did is that we cut off the overland sentences and cut it as a threshold of 20 because it's, uh, we want to have the fixed length input for the model. We didn't do any other additional pre-processing. And we treat all the data set as the same. We treat questions and uh, captions all as sentences, which is related to the image. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about uh, the fine-tuning parts of your model training. So in your paper, you also fine-tune on uh, this some visual question-answering tasks, right? And uh, I, I was curious if there was any overlap in the visual question answering data sets used for pre-training and fine-tuning. Actually, they are overlapping. It, it, I think this is more, the pre-training is more like a market task pre-training. We actually pre-trained on the mask language model and the mask jet prediction. And we also pre-trained on the visual question answering task. And the, for the fine-tuning, we also fine-tuning on the visual question answering task. But they are actually a little bit different. In the pre-training, we mask the word and the object in the question and let the model to predict the answer. But in the fine-tuning, we just give the full sentence and the full objects. So they are different inputs. And uh, also for when you're using visual question answering, can you describe to us the main experiments, the main fine-tuning experiments that you uh, performed uh, for your paper? Uh, yeah, so we mainly fine-tune on three different data sets. The first one is VQE, and second one is GQE, and the third one is an area too. So maybe I just described the VQE because for the other data set is almost the same. So for the VQE, we just take the pre-trained Lexmer model and fine-tune maybe fine-tune three or two epochs on the VQE data set. And we use a very, very small batch size. It's 32 batch size. And the result is much higher than the previous work. And uh, in fine-tuning the VQE data set, we did not take additional data augmentation because in previous work, on fine-tuning on the VQE dataset, they usually use additional VGQE and visual dialogue dataset as data augmentation. But because with our pre-training, the model already have a very good representation of the cross-modality. So we did not take this kind of data augmentation. Okay. Yeah, so I did notice that you have lots of experiments in your paper and there were lots of different classes of results that we can go over. That's all really exciting. Can you start off by describing what the general high-level trends are uh, in these results? Yeah, the general trend is that I think the first one is the scalability, that if we have more layers, more data, and more training steps, the result would be better. This is the first observation. And the second observation is that all the pre-training tasks helps a lot. We have some ablations that they are all five pre-tasks, and we found that every pre-training task significantly contributes to the final results. Okay. And can you like give us a quick summary of the numbers here, how you did mention that uh, Lexmer fine-tuned did much better than the previous models. Can you give a quick summary of those results? On the VQ data set, we actually have 1.5 point on the accuracy, which outperforms all previous work. And on the VQ data set, a 0.5 increment in accuracy is considered as a significant improvement. So we have a large jump here. And on the GQ data set, because last year is the first time when GQ released, 
and we attended the jQuery challenge and we get the first place if we use the standard feature. And on the area to we improve the previous best result by around 15 points in accuracy. So it's a very large jump. Yeah, on VizWiz, we also get the first place on VizWiz. Yeah, Visual Wizard, the task from CM. And you also have lots of interesting analysis on your results in your paper. Let's look at that. So the first bit of analysis you did was uh, comparing Lexmert with some forms of augmented, visually augmented BERT. Can you please describe to us uh, that bit of analysis? Yeah, we actually tried two different ways to use BERT. The first way is that we directly load the BERT weight into Lexmert and the fine-tuning downstream task like victory on NVR2. And the second setup is that we load the bird weight into pre-training. And what we actually use that we did not initialize, we did not initialize weight with bird and just do pre-training. And we found that our configuration that did not load bird got the best result. And uh, if we directly loading bird, it's actually broken on the area 2 dataset. We still consider what happens here, but uh, we did not get a clear answer why. Because the major answer is that we think that it may be the language representation and the vision representation is they are very different from each other. So it's very hard to make them to have a joint representation. See, yeah. Yeah, uh, any further analysis on along that line would be quite interesting. I think it's a very interesting result that uh, uh, initiating with Bert didn't, didn't really help. And I was wondering if going in the other direction would help as well. I mean, that's, I know that's not like the main point of your paper anyway, but if, if you say to pre-train Lexmert and use that or use at least some of those ways to initialize a BERT-like model, which is purely uh, language uh, modality, do, do you think that would help? Yeah, we have some initial attempt on it and uh, we found that it doesn't help too much because I think the main reason is that BERT is pre-trained on a very, very large corpus. It has three billion tokens. And uh, our last merge is only trained on a small data set. It has around 100 million tokens. So it's around 30 times less than the BERT pre-train. So it does not cover a large range of linguistic phenomenon. And uh, I think it's, so it does not work well on the pure language test. But we are currently aiming to improve it. Yeah, I guess my intuition here is that we need better evaluations to really show the gains from these things. If our current data sets are largely IID trained test data sets, these large models with lots of data will memorize distributions and, and, and largely fail to generalize off of the, the distribution that we give it. And we need better evaluations that will actually test this stuff before, for instance, the vision and language pre-training will actually help on language-only tasks. We don't we don't have good enough tests anywhere to actually evaluate this, and someone needs to make some before we'll actually see gains from doing this kind of thing. I guess even for uh, vision and language tasks, having uh, better benchmarks for out of domain generalization uh, testing, uh, where someone like could be clearly che like very concretely checking for the uh, IID distribution uh, differences that you mentioned, uh, would also be very useful. Right. So before we conclude this discussion, I wanted to ask you if you could summarize the similarities and the differences between Lexmert and many of the other multimodal transformer papers that were pretty much contemporary uh, that came around the same time. Right? Can you please tell us uh, what you think are the similarities and the differences between your model and those other models? I think most of the works are different in, in all three aspects. The data set, the protein data set, and the model and the pre-training method. So I will take the 
to concurrently work the VRBIRT and VisualBIRT as, as an example. So for VRBIRT, it's pre-trained on the conceptual captions. It's a large dataset provided by Google from the internet captioning dataset. And uh, so that dataset is, is 30 times larger than images. And it also, for the model parts, it, the VRBIRT, it does not have the visual encoder. And for the pre-training method, it does not have the feature regression. And uh, for the implemented details, it also have it differs a lot in the code and something like this. And so for the visual bird, it only uses the MS Google dataset as its pre-trained dataset. So it's a smaller dataset. The visual bird is a single streamed model. It does not have separate language encoder and visual encoder. They take the visual images as additional tokens to the language instead. And for the pre-trained task, the visual encoder does not predict the vision path. It does not predict the missing object, and it just predicts the cross-modality matching and the mask language model. I think due to this difference, our model still outperforms them in all overlapping data sets, like in the VQE on area two. Yeah, and then I think some other later work also has extended Lexmerd to lots and lots more data and lots and lots more GPUs. And then there's uh, clearly, uh, you can see even better results. But uh, like Matt said, I'm sure there is some saturation soon. And then it is much more interesting to see how yeah. to force these models to start thinking about generalization and also unimodal improvement. If you had infinite compute and resources to get any already existing data that you could, What's your intuition for like the best way to train a vision plus language encoder? Does it, does the question make sense? Like it, it, it sure seems like language modeling is a, is a reasonable way to like, if I have infinite compute, just get really good representations for language. How do we do this for vision plus language? If I have infinite compute? I think it might be better to train on the YouTube videos and these captions. I, I didn't know the exact number, but I think it's the largest vision language that I said, because in the video it's, each video would have multiple images, and the language it would have a very large language dataset. And I think even better if every pupil could take some, take their phone, and and just take photos and speak to the phone, and we collect this kind of dataset. I think it might be even better because this is how we teach the child, teach the children to learn the language. We we gives we show them what is a table, what is a chair, and here's what's the table mm -hmm. and the chair of a language. I, yeah, I think the main thing we are missing in all this uh, research community, uh, at least from maybe uh, not, not all the whole community, but something that we've been discussing on this podcast is uh, all the non-verbal uh, modalities. So when we attend some, like we had this recent workshop last year, end of last year uh, with speech language and robotics from NSF. Uh, and basically, we have a lot of colleagues there who work extensively on gesture, on gaze, on a lot of like uh, pointing to things like how said, that's how we teach kids. Uh, so that's fascinating to me because there's just, uh, obviously there's a dearth of data sets for that. Uh, but like Matt said, if I could just close my eyes and wish for uh, data sets, I would like a reasonably large data set that has these other non-verbal modalities uh, in addition to just language and images. Yeah, great. It's interesting to hear your thoughts. You've, you've worked on this more than I have. My intuition was also YouTube videos that that's probably the best already existing data source if you had infinite compute to run on stuff. Yeah, but you're right. It, if we're talking about infinite resources to collect data, then you could probably do more interesting stuff. But that's that's a harder problem. Videos are a good surrogate to extract the kind of things I'm talking about, but they'll still not be clean enough. But yeah, that, that's... yeah. 
Yeah, okay, thanks. This is, uh, this is a really cool work and I really enjoyed reading your paper and uh, chatting with you. Is there anything that you've been doing after this uh, paper was published that you'd like to talk about? Uh, the, the major thing I'm currently working on is that I want to test whether, the, as we all said that before, like we in this work, we that the pre-training on the cross-modality is possible. And the second thing I want to show is that whether the vision modality and the language modality would help each other. Like if the vision modality would help to build a better language pre-training encoder and all the language encoder could help build a better pre-training encoder. So this is the major thing I'm currently looking on. And I also want to look at another thing that because this work, we build pre-training language across modality encoder with parallel data. So it requires the image and the sentence to be corresponded to each other. The thing I want to look at is that whether we could build the cross-modality representation with unparalleled data. It's just we just have a, a large language corpus and a large image corpus, whether we could just build a cross-modality representation based on these two kind of data. Yeah, so sort of like the non-parallel data yeah. that exists in much bigger quantities and then goes back to some of Matt's points about like the latent alignment learning versus some noisy initial alignments, so all of that. And then obviously uh, from our other work on TVQA and TVR, we are also trying to, with some other students, diving deeper into videos uh, to improve because that's a lot of images in one video and obviously lots more of spatial and temporal as opposed to just spatial information. Yeah, this is that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of the this connection uh, between vision plus language multimodal re representations and like unsupervised machine translation kinds of stuff. There's really interesting things to think about along those lines. That's really interesting. Yeah, and all the bridging stuff also. All right. Yeah, thanks a lot for this interesting discussion. Uh, I had fun chatting with you. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Thank you.